Hi, I'm Karen Derricades, and you're listening to We Make Media, a podcast about how the culture we produce shapes media and how that goes both ways. I'm here with Kat Bloomkey, Jonathan Carroll of Specwork Studios, as well as Ian Soder. They all work together at Tough Guy Mountain, artist-run company focusing on the glories, trials, and absurdity of late capitalism. They're also hosts of uh, a podcast called Art, Work, Play, uh, and creators of works exploring corporate culture, labor narratives, and uh, they do that by creating very hilarious apps uh, such as Escape the Gig Economy and most recently Intern Purgatory. I wanted to talk to you guys today about your apps, virtual reality and the arts, uh, and what it's like to job share. You guys, you guys are sharing that job up there in Regina. <laughs> yeah. You're currently in Regina, and you are co-digital programs coordinators at uh, Mackenzie Art Gallery, no? Yes, yes. Technically, we do fill two positions, but they did combine the, them so that we would be getting paid equally for our for yeah, our they, work. They pay, us, they pay us equal. Amount. Yeah, <laughs> would have been pretty rough if they paid you whatever the amount of money that women usually make. Yeah, yeah. They, I think they're very careful at not paying me seventy five cents on the dollar to Jonathan. <laughs> That's cool. And would you guys? So you guys do a lot of work in concert. What does that look like? The three of us have been doing it for like so many years now that it feels very normal um Mm -hmm. we started working together in 2013 as tough guy mountain and ian and i had been working together uh, for a number of years before that doing theater productions and that sort of performance stuff so we've always been really into performance yeah there was when we when we started working together like as tough guy mountain or uh even our later works as spec work there was always like a material reason for wanting to pool resources together as an artist collective if you had you know more uh people involved in the project you'd be able to do something a little bit more grand of course then we realized that often came at the price of still receiving the same if at any artist's fee it be at the same artist fee as an individual and having to split that god knows how many like 12 times Uh, (laughs) but uh, 100 bucks divided by 12 (laughs) we just buy a really big pizza with it at that point um, so that we're at least all fed before the performance definitely job sharing as uh, like a method of collective art making definitely something that we were exploring a lot of the early work that we were doing as tough guy mountain was specific specifically about the concept of unpaid internships or the roles of unpaid interns and, and how unpaid work or at certainly like lower paying work or, or uh, the unpaid work that happens if you're an artist or if you want to work in the arts, hopefully one day that sort of runs the whole system, all this work that's going into supporting it that's not sustainable. We kind of referred to our artist practice as an unpaid internship. Right. Oh, nice. Because that's what <laughs> it right. was. Like, you know, even though we were the ones running the unpaid internship, that's definitely what we were doing and who we were. One of our slogans is like from that experience is just be your own unpaid intern, <laughs> which I'd seen. Then you don't I've feel as sort of, exploited, yeah. Yeah, exploit, like make yourself, yeah. And like sort of as an artist, that's what you have to do. And that's sort of what all artists do to a certain degree, because art involves all this work that you have to do that you have to fit into all these nooks and crannies like not only making your artwork but like applying for grants or and then also tr- 
trying to make money some other way. But I, I recently saw an ad, though, that where it flips it around and it's like, be your own CEO, which is like also sort of mind blowing. <laughs> Great spin. Which is also what we were doing. You yeah. know, we, were, we, were, we were the whole kit and caboodle of our, you know, money losing company. Well, which you kind of touch upon in Intern Purgatory, right? Where the, the part about the executive as born, born of these two viruses and the intern as the kind of mirror reflection of that on the other end of the spectrum. Exactly. And the, and the kind of like polarity that comes from hierarchy. And that was actually something that like real that we experienced when we first started working as a collective because at first we were sort of different people were playing executive characters and different people were playing intern characters but then as sort of like as we went through it it was actually sort of like you know making certain people feel like they were like lower down in the pecking order even though there wasn't necessarily a clear authority so at that point we were having actual conversations and it was like all right everyone gets an executive character and everyone gets an intern character and you have to (laughs) play both of them and that will like you know, like soothe all the egos and settle all um, hierarchy based amounts of credit. So, you know, you solve the problems inside of fiction that you can't solve in real life. Yeah. Well, those narratives are so deep because I mean, I have my five year old always ask questions about like, do bosses do a lot of work or no work? <laughs> like, or like and she'll ask Very the same, perceptive. Right? Because she's like, why do people want to be the boss of people if you keep telling me that bosses have responsibilities and are supposed to be leaders? Now, now it really is a shame that Ben isn't here just because Ben has a, a kid and I've definitely like, talked to this kid many times about what it means to be a manager. And like, like <laughs> a manager specifically being the most absurd concept for a job that this eight-year-old at the time had had ever heard of (laughs) (laughs) that's a good idea for a podcast too just like talking about bosses with children trying to explain the concept of of class to children that's so great (laughs) that would be so great but yeah also you you know you guys mentioned in in one of your episodes of the podcast of just doing one of just talking to like contract workers like also in the context of everything that's happening now like that would be so i think incredibly powerful radical like I mean it would be riveting listening <laughs> like, I think I think people just bitching about their boss that's the, I feel like, like that's like one of the only ways we have to build sort of like class solidarity in our alienated times is by like collectively uh, complaining about our employers or our jobs in general <laughs> just not on the uh, just not on the official slack channel or anything <laughs> <laughs> how come how come bosses haven't like commodified that in the workplace where like a, a workplace seminar is like it's actually healthy to bitch about your bosses and we've created the specific slack channel where you can all do that together of course you know supervised by one of your bosses well don't Make didn't sure google have those friday hand. things or whatever but they're just veiled like nobody's actually <laughs> yeah. like, it's like in the interview when you're asked like what is your worst quality and you're like well yes. i'm a workaholic and i'm incredibly loyal to the company you know like, <laughs> Like my, really... my criticism is that you're too generous <laughs> as my boss. Exactly. <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys about like why apps? Like why 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 make apps? Tough Guy Mountain really was a performance art collective at its core. Like it was really started with like performance art as its media, but it was always integrating different tech alongside these performances as a means for the audience to interact with things. So like this could be strapping iPads to our bodies and having the audience like interact with surveys, filling out questionnaires on the performers' bodies on these on these iPads rather that are strapped to the performance. 
farmers' bodies. And then as we gathered more skills at kind of working in di different digital techniques, those like became more and more ambitious. I think performances with as far as like what kind of tech we wanted to involve. There was also the like ephemerality of performance work as well as something that really came to like we as a as a collective as like a collective with many members who are contributing um, their time and effort. The sort of ephemeral nature of performance art because it will disappear afterwards was really like struck us. And I think like Jonathan, maybe you want to talk about because you were you were kind of the instigator for going in the app direction. Like also the fact that we were performing as a company, like we were performing specifically as this du jour company, like a startup, like we were kind of wanted to come across like some version of Google. Um, and so making an app was obviously like an uh, appealing kind of project to us. And even though it was like, you know, we were just going to be performing the making of this app at first, but like around uh, like 2016 was when we first started actually trying to develop an app and it was called Mount. And the way we talked about it was as like a social media platform where you get to be your own unpaid intern for yourself. But in reality, it was going to be really just like an intern like aesthetic Tamagotchi that connected to your social media platform. So we kind of had like a big, a big version of it, but Do you feed um, your intern or like, what is, what is Yeah. So like, well, like, I mean, we're, this is actually something like still in development. So we still could finish this project someday, but we always like performed as though Mount was a real thing. And it was like a must have app that like, you know, everyone's using, but yeah, it was part like Tamagotchi where you had, where you saw your little intern kind of moving around inside their cubicle and you had to feed them and take care of them. But the way that you would feed them was by feeding them likes off social media. So it would be connected to your Facebook. We talked about it being integrated across many platforms, but like we worked on it specifically through like, Jonathan, you can speak to this more in terms of having it on the, what the, the Facebook. It was a plugin for Facebook is how What's it existed. It or... There's like Facebook developer. Is that what you're talking about? Or like API is another word that could be relevant here where it's like Facebook has an easily, it's easier to make stuff for, it's a pretty open uh, thing just compared to Instagram, also owned by Facebook. Mm -hmm. And sorry, you and you can still do that. You're like, you're talking about like, um, like pet rescue and stuff like that, like stuff like games that people make for, but you can also do it the same way you can do like filters for for Instagram or whatever. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. For no money, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just to enhance that. They wouldn't that give, you, give you the analytics so you can improve your product. Do they give you, you analytics? Uh, you're doing it at the at the mercy of Facebook. So it's like, I never even managed to get them to approve any of the prototypes that I was trying to get them to approve just because it's the same as any app store, like the iOS app store that, that we put stuff up on now where they have like real people looking at your stuff and as artists who are programming or like, you know, trying to do it. There's just a lot of learning curve stuff that is hard to surmount. But also there's a lot of like, there's a lot of really standardized design in apps that, you know, really limit the creative like look or feel or, or aspects <laughs> of like how you work with this app. So it's like, there's a lot of expectations both on users and on the platform of how this app might work. You know, you're really used to like seeing like a game where you like collect some sort of currency or maybe it's like a very linear thing or like a, there's all these standard standards of people 
have for engaging with software and if you want to really expand upon those limitations that are set. It's very challenging. You know, it's very difficult to creatively misuse things within Facebook because the way that they approve it or the way that they match it is with like whether there's enough people and whether those people kind of get it, you know, are a fit for Mm -hmm. it, right? So it's like, how do you define that within something that's not a practical or that doesn't have a parallel that's like, it's Candy Crush, but with puppies, you know, or like whatever. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a winner right there. I think you should should develop that idea. Puppy Crush? We we started working on this app uh, mount in 2016, but before Trump was elected and all that Cambridge Analytica stuff came out about like what data was available to people on Facebook. And I remember like learning how to access people's data and the way Mount worked was it. it uh, I'm glad I get to talk about this <laughs> podcast. But the way that the, the way that this software worked was it downloaded all your posts that you had ever made and then basically like processed the amount of likes that were on those posts. And that was the amount of uh, food that you had to feed your intern. But I think you could also use the likes to buy well, things for to, their To explain like the you know original basic idea of that versus the actual reality of what we could do on Facebook was that, yes, you'd feed your Tamagotchi intern through the likes that you got on your posts. And you'd level up your intern through getting these likes the way that, you know, Tamagotchis like, you know, grow and thrive. But that once you got to a certain level, the intern would be able to start reading your posts and actually composing posts for you to publish them for you. And then the idea is like, oh, what we're actually selling here is like, you don't have to keep using social media because we've given you your own intern who can do it for you. So like we wanted like a jokey revolution where it caused everyone to stop posting because they just like, and and, you know, around the same time as like when we were starting to get really wise to like bots following us on Instagram and stuff like that and like joking about like what happens when two bots are just talking to each other. It's like, well, what if that was just all social media and we just Yeah, what if you just outsourced it to the bot? Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely what we wanted to do. Or what happens if your your you know your bot posts something offensive by accident? Like, oh my my intern Tamagotchi got cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> You've done some installation stuff you guys did with Tough Guy Mountain that is kind of like going to a corporate conference room or like Condo Maxium. Condo Maxium. Yeah, I mean I think we we just like I think, you know, we were moving to Toronto around the point where we did that show, for example. And like, you know, we we found all this stuff really funny. Like, you know, like seeing condo showrooms felt hilarious. But you know, I, I do think that like as the times changed as we were just growing as a artist collective, like a lot of these things became like less funny like it just became like you know like all the, all the stuff like it, it, it really seemed like a joke but then like it was always real and then it just seemed to become like more real or we or like the the the, the joke of it I, I don't know like maybe it felt like at one point like oh we can just laugh this stuff off but then like you know like condos aren't funny anymore they're just like they're like the they, they seemed hilarious like oh man like i mean i don't know what happens to condo development post covid but like you know up until a couple of weeks ago they were like the unstoppable scourge that was going to destroy everything in the city and you know we can laugh all we want at them but it was pretty brutal so yeah a lot of the real estate is all like augmented and, and virtual reality tours but apparently the tours continue like real estate is you know and construction has been continuing 
because you know mm-hmm. that's that's important that those people don't lose it's their investments. So yeah, you important. don't need you don't need to live somewhere to speculate on the land. Mm-hmm. You don't need to actually physically be in your condo. You can be physically distant in whatever condo you already own and speculate on the new condo that you're buying. <laughs> and yeah, buy it on specs, right? Is the spec work is that referring to both kind of like speculation in terms of speculative markets as well as like specs? Specifically, yeah, spec work was a name that we decided to start publishing things under in 2018. Specifically, I approached like John and our, another collaborator, not here today, Ben, who had worked with me on the project Gigco, which was the work I created for my MFA thesis. And my MFA thesis was essentially in speculative design. My main focus was like, what is the relationship of design to like labor conditions and, and workers' rights? And so I was really looking at how gamification was changing the way that people worked. So that term, of course, meaning then um, being a buzzword for a while, like meaning the ways that video game mechanics are influencing the ways people work or like the software that people are using or, or even the sort of uh, reward systems that are built into social media that keep the audience coming back and essentially giving their free labor so that to, to advertisers and to Facebook. And then, of course, as artists, we are always like working on spec with the assumption that perhaps we'll be hopefully be paid. So it was all, yeah, it was a bit of tongue in cheek with with the name. Yeah, gamification. Yeah, the gamification of like the likes and the attention and all this kind of stuff, but also like a wonderful tool for looking at like larger systems or... Yeah, it's sort of like the question of being able to break down or even critique the master's home using the master's tools. You know, it's like the apps are sort of the like the epitome of, of that, because like especially we make apps for the iOS and like Android devices, particularly on iOS, where it's such a closed loop, vertically integrated ecosystem that you're creating something for, which with implications in terms on the like global stage in terms of like where the hardware is produced and then like the implications of like the software and what other how people are making money and then all that the money that's being hoarded by a corporation like apple in places where it can't be taxed like you're you're creating work that is it seems hard to it seems hard to justify from a moral standpoint in terms of thinking that way but then uh, doubly so this sort of thing we were talking about earlier of because of the way that apps work generally in the way that they manipulate our behavior, uh, people being unwilling to accept any sort of experience in a piece of software that's outside of the of the norm. And that's sort of creating a challenge for artists to create um, interesting experiences or experiences that like sort of deviate from what what the the sort of feeling that you get from when you use Instagram or for when you play Candy Crush, that's what people expect. And then when you deliver other things. I, I think like building games or like working in apps, like you're creating systems, you're really like designing a way for things to work and like the logic behind that. I think that's a really interesting way to like understand the logic behind how the rest of the experiences we exp- like that happen through software or through apps work. Hopefully, hopefully it's like interesting for the audience too and not just for the people who are building it but (laughs) that's a speculative design thing that is the way we try to inspire the app and software design work that we do from speculative design is like a speculative design is about like imagining and worlding and speculating (laughs) Um, and so if you're making an app that might be challenging in a way then at least Hopefully the return for that is that you are doing some of that like um, 
proposing alternatives potentially and like the ways that software and games can represent systems pretty well as a medium. Mm. Or represent alternative systems too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But even just the way you guys have that in the introduction, um, that's just, uh, maybe I'll just play it actually. Close your eyes. (laughs) You are about to begin the first day of your unpaid internship. You are falling deeper, deeper, deeper into the internship. <laughs> you accept. It feels very familiar, right? Because all the like work culture kind of stuff or that like orientation day or like just the tone and, and, and those kinds of those pieces. A bunch of the work we've made recently have felt, like you said, like very much like onboarding for a new job. Because it's like whenever we're showing work to a new audience, we feel kind of like we're introducing them to a workplace because that's literally like we've designed a fictional workplace. So we kind of have to onboard our audience. But it means like, you know, we're making a new script. It's always just like we're making a new introduction for this because it's always introduction. So we're just just stuck in employee onboarding (laughs) perpetually. It's like... (laughs) All we do. You should you should see Jonathan do it though at a live uh, gallery when he's showing a new whether it's a spec work thing or an old tough guy mountain thing. You know Jonathan's very much like a, a snake oil salesman and he's like step 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 right up and you know Cat and I will like stand there and just watch him after we after we both I've get been tired. Told I have a good. <laughs> it's it's like a, I've been told I have a bedside manner with VR where <laughs> nice. it's like it's sort of like you have to you know put it on and convince the person that you're not trying to. You're touching them, but you're not stealing their wallet. Because yeah. <laughs> you have to convince. It, like, it is sort of similar with any art piece where you have to onboard people to a certain degree. But then there's something about our about Tough Guy Mountain because it's very narrative focused. Uh, you got to get people to when there's a narrative, you sort of have to go for buy in in this certain sort of way that really lends itself to onboard to like going with corporate onboarding culture um, as a sort of like trope. How do you actually make these? Like, uh, what is the actual process? Not only like, you know, your guys creative process, like uh, collectively, like what that means, what that looks like, but also like what kind of hardware, software you're using to do these things. All, all of us sort of plan out stuff together. Like we talk about concepts or yeah. like ideas, yeah, like what, what could, what would, what be fun? What would be really funny? <laughs> and then Ian does writing and Kat does design and I do like a uh, pro programming that's been our workflow for the past couple years on these apps and usually it'll be sort of like passing it we have a project and we like pass it between ourselves where like maybe cat will start with a storyboard uh, and then ian will base a script off that and then i'll make software from that or Ian will start with a script and then Kat will make some visualizations and I'll try to capture some of those visuals in the game engine Unity which is where that's where we make all our stuff mm-hmm. but also yeah, of course then we're we're using like Google Drive uh, to make sure that we have like can work collaboratively all the time or we're using like Photoshop or Blender to build like some of the graphic stuff and yet there's like a, a, a large cloud of, of various software that's like integrated into our practice that's always 
sometimes changing for the mm-hmm. to try a cool new thing and then going back to the old old worry. <laughs> we had a brief flirtation with Unreal Engine, which is like the you know version of Unity that requires less coding and is more like connecting nodes rather than writing lines of code. But then Unity offered us a, like more customization where Unreal kind of gave everything a really specific look. It was more like limited in the specific, as I guess like any program that is going to offer you more user friendliness is also going to offer you less control over lots of specific things. I mean, I think we started using Unity like a long time ago in like a really primitive way where we were pretty much like playing with the sort of like map editor stuff and like, oh, we can raise the elevation with this slider and like, oh, we can import this like, you know, PNG file and turn it into like a texture. So now we've got hills that, you know, are a whole bunch of bunnies or something like that. But uh, I feel like early on we made like a really stupid looking version of our fake corporate headquarters and we made that in unity with like almost no code but you know jonathan's gotten a little better at it i'm still at that level you're all familiar with unity or feel comfortable with it or whatever vastly different levels yeah yeah very different uh like 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 i do the 3d modeling and assigning materials and like placing those in the space but like jonathan does like all the programming and it's like usually i think i've heard of like in video game studios they'll have like level designers and then they'll have programmer like the people who are less working with visual side of things and more with the code and that's sort of like me but like ian and kat are both able to there's there's different thing there's different things in unity and then even more if you're good at designing custom tools for building for like making unity work for the specific situation Uh, that you're trying to design something for in terms of what the level designers, the non-programmers who are using Unity can use. Yes, John is very good at coding specific little like tools and sliders for the rest of us to use who like don't want to like put in any code at all. It's just like, can I like do this, but can I drag it into a box (laughs) instead? And then Jonathan's like, I'll get you back. (laughs) I understand what you mean. Um, But yeah, because I think it's Unity is a nice software because it does have that visual like interface obviously and allows for this like vastly different capacity of understanding the software to be fairly competent uh, or make fairly competent things even if you like you know don't program in it necessarily. I think but I think it's only recently that we've been able to do that more because before then I wasn't good enough to sort of play that role of building tools for other people to use in unity and so more so just had to be me siloed in unity like making things work badly um (laughs) or like just barely making things work uh and then not making it work in a way that it's easy to collaborate on so but there it's just something that i had to learn sort of piecemeal over the years and not never received a proper education. So it's like year after year, I understand it so much differently than before that when I like have to work on older, if I have to work on older projects, it's very, it's hard to do. But now I think once you reach a certain point in this software specifically, game engine software, where you're like, it's useful if you can build custom tools within it, then it's easier to collaborate with other people. And yeah, you are, so you're writing all of that code, or you're refining, like, working with open source code, or, like... Oh, yeah, 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 all the time. Yeah, especially when I was learning more. It's lots of, like, copy and pasting. 
Um, but now in intern purgatory, uh, the app that we're releasing now, we're trying to implement our first bit of like text-based um, narrative stuff that Ian is able to sort of author separately. And then we use a plugin that's a lot like Twine, if you're familiar with that. Twine is really cool. Like for making true Te- like Yeah, stories. text-based adventures. Like yes. you walk Branching into a narratives. room, <laughs> do yeah. you go left or right? <laughs> and it allows you to create that. That sounds like the start yeah, of a great yeah. adventure. Lots of software. <laughs> what, what about talking a little bit more about building for Android versus iOS, like the closed system versus the the open yeah, system? Yeah, um, the other reason we use Unity is because it's so it's like very multi-platform. So, and like technically, you can make stuff in Unity and then uh, build it to different platforms, whether it's like apple um or android so there's some some ways in which it's sort of streamlined but it's also quite a pain to have to deal with all these different like uh channels and stores and um from like from our end what it looks like is like and the way i experience the difference between android and apple is that android costs 25 dollars to join the a year right no 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 No, just in total wow to join their developer program and then apple costs 99 dollars a year to be on the apple store and then even if you don't release anything that year if you like want to keep your stuff on right and how many things can you you release for that price everything as much as you want yeah the apple also has a lot a stricter upload guidelines and review policies. It's a closed system economically, but the software is also this sort of closed system where they're very particular about what stuff can get let on. So you have to do all this in, like technical stuff that was very uh, difficult to uh, learn how to do. It took a lot of a lot of googling. I had to Google really hard. <laughs> Like where in Apple, you have to download all these different certificates that like sort of authorize that you, the person who's uploading the app has this specific Apple ID and all that stuff. So so then the, the funny like consequence with Android is that there's a lot more crap that you're competing with in the Android store. You're fighting the numbers, especially if you're like a small developer because you're an artist, you don't have like any sort of ad campaign like targeting people to your work you can easily get lost there's very little like natural uh or like organic uh attention that you can get in the android store i mean still in the apple app store it's like because you're also if you're also just a small developer as an artist virtually no audience um compared to like any app we try to be on both uh just because it's not a financial venture. Like we don't, ex- there's no way, to, all our apps are free. We, we do have some, uh, you can buy some new character skins in our GigCo game. But you um, can also just earn them by continuously playing the game. Yeah. <laughs> very few people go to an opening at an artist-run center so you know certainly one would imagine that more than 10 people might you know be able to to get the app on their phone or whatever (laughs) Um, that's how i think about it too yeah (laughs) i think i think giggo has like a thousand downloads or something around there which is like yeah that's more people than go to a gallery (laughs) show that (laughs) somehow it doesn't feel as good though does it you know then when 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 40 people show up to your your opening it feels real good no. Yeah. Yeah. No one. No one saw the outfit I was wearing for my release day. <laughs> my eyeliner was so even. <laughs> On the other hand, like in terms of organizing them as digital information, like 
there's not like hashtags or like how do I like I just looked you know looked up art apps or whatever on my in my app store and of course it's all you know like Canva and like you know I, I was paint and stuff it's in theory it seems on point right <laughs> like in terms of like where art is and like where people are and how to get how to put it in their hands and in their phone as opposed to having to get them to come out but there's still not a colloquial like I don't know how many people are if there were more people searching for art apps I imagine that they would be easier to find maybe or maybe not <laughs> If there was any demand for them outside of just like the grant programs that are funding them. <laughs> yeah, the comp like the competition are, are are just because of the platform itself is intended for commerce, for apps that have audiences and subscriptions and fees and a purpose beyond the enlightening joy you get from experiencing art. Ha 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 ha. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's I think it's a challenging medium for uh, for artists to get into as well. Like that's so that's sort of some of the stuff that we are thinking about as like as spec work because we've kind of collaborated or like published apps for other artists as well just because then like oh we're already paying for the developer fee and you don't have to and maybe we can give you like some tips and on like how to prep something you've been working on for for this platform the other thing that i like or that is nice about it which is obvious is that like if if you are making apps as your art it's something that is like usually an individual work of art is like a, a million dollars or whatever but if you're making apps as art if you're charging even charging any money for it it's just going to be like small change or something like it's something 399 yeah yeah so wait are you saying you like how there's like you're saying you like how you make no money because you make art apps or you're saying i don't it... like making no money but i like <laughs> art like there's something utopian about art that's not just about the exchange value which is what art in the rest of our society is only like art that is valued by our capital society is only valued as exchange value but theoretically if we're making an app that people can use it has a use value where but in that's not true in reality because like uh the use values that people are searching for on the art store or on the app store <laughs> the art store it's <laughs> a good idea not, for it's an not app. a yeah <laughs> not looking for enlightenment like you were saying yeah so as a use Jonathan, yeah that is are you telling us that the apple um app store gave us the option of making our app cost um nine hundred thousand dollars and, <laughs> and, and you did not take that option <laughs> Where do these? Where does this stuff live its best life? Then, like, ideally, like, is it in people's hands in an, in an intimate moment at home? Like, or is it in this gallery setting while you're doing your your snake charming? Yeah, yeah where does it meet its audience? Very much at at home. I think it's very challenging to program the work in a gallery setting because it's intended for this, as you say, intimate, at least in the sense of it's like one person can use this device because it's so small because it's for a phone or an iPad. I mean, when we were creating work that was more performance and installation and it used an iPad or an iPhone, there was a lot more stuff like peripheral stuff that people could look at. Or uh, there's a performer who's like talking to you and guiding you through this and like there's kind of a song and dance that you wait through but yeah it's very challenging i think to pro uh, to program in a gallery space like an experience that's intended to kind of be a one like a one-on phone experience we have a version of GigCo, for example, that is specifically intended to be shown in gallery spaces. Like it's a desktop version that is a co cooperative mode and pending 
grant funding at some point that hasn't been successful so far. We act like we want to re like build an entire cabinet for it, so it has more of a of a physical presence. But that's built specifically for this project. It's not appropriate for each one. Like with intern purgatory, you can't have uh, the same. You couldn't have it in a cabinet because it is like it's an app that does appy things, uh, and you need to move around with it. We've presented it on headsets before, but it's yeah. And really. we try. We're still trying to develop different performances mm -hmm. that sort of like happen around around the app. So we did. Uh, we presented the intern purgatory in at uh, Nocturne Festival in uh, Halifax, which is like Mublanche in, in Halifax. We built a giant three panel like uh, projection screen with three different projectors. Uh, to show the video, so it could be a surround like, projection. Yeah, because VR is like a surround projection, <laughs> but in a headset, so that you don't actually have to build a surround projection screen. That was actually the the VR headset was a good idea. <laughs> Much easier than building a surround projection screen <laughs> that you set up and tear down yeah, in one night. Um, you talk you talk to an intern uh, purgatory about like art being a horrible client for a, for a branding firm. Um, why is why is art such a horrible brand? I mean, that's a, a long joke we've used. When we made our play, that was the central plot in the play, was like Tough Guy Mountain, the branding corporation, trying to figure out how to make art marketable. Um, and, and I mean, you know, spoiler alert, but they, they, they fail and turn to more nefarious ends. But that, like, as artists, we were like, we were stimulated at first by the idea of like, oh, like, how can we find new ways to make art in this like you know like really well developed capitalist economy and like you know we honestly we, ne we never found a way at all like we never even came close but at that point in time we were at least into the joke of trying and so like trying to find a way to package obviously i mean obviously like people sell their art i'm not like ignoring the entire art market but for people like us who are who are media artists who are working in technologies who are not making things for sale and we're not looking for a path to make work for the art market that was sort of our actual real life challenge and we and we thought it was a funny challenge the absurdity of it was um always very present and so that came across in our work a lot just directly as a theme and uh, you know i'd love to tell you how to, to make art into a better client but we definitely never figured it out at all so i mean I, you know at, at the end of that play tough guy mountain just decides to replace art and that's the only way forward for it is to replace it with something better because art will never to never be marketable under the terms of like what would make a good brand kind of thing so or at least, you know, it was also our, our, our way to, you know, present our own cynical views and make fun of ourselves and make fun of art. Mm -hmm. The internet and these platforms are built by artists and creatives or like, you know, they're always asking for, for, for creatives advice and for artists, you know what I mean? Like give us the, give, you know, I was trying to vampire, vampirize like the creative souls of the arts and cultural producers and then ruin it somehow, you know, then stick it yeah, in a I mean, square I, format or, uh, you know what I mean? Or, 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 or limit it in some way. Yeah. I mean, like, I think like, you know, as kids getting into art, you look at the world and you see that, you know, all these things that are making money, they need artists. Like, you know, like when 
we were talking about condos earlier, like they needed people to design their showrooms and like, you know, and even just like advertising has a trillion different artistic things. So, but you know, I, I think the alienation just obviously lies in the intention where like, if you're not trying to make money or if you're trying to make something of artistic value that is like that is completely separate from actual monetary value it, it's, it's like it actually I think it's impossible like it's early it seems to me like I think it's 100% impossible like you got to choose one or the other right because of the intention oh, uh, there's also been like this sort of uh, war against the social since like the the 70s or the 80s uh, by like capitalism uh, and by the social I mean anything that exists in like society that isn't like business whether it's like arts you know arts and culture just in the form of funding getting slashed by arts and culture uh, but then also, I think sort of that goes along with propaganda going against the funding of social programs, whether it is like everything, education, healthcare, but then like arts and culture is just another one. I think if you talk about like art having a bad brand right now, its brand has been like fought against by those sorts of like powers of austerity. And then like the funding is eroded to like make the brand that is of art that is trying to help society. Once that disappears, all that you're left with is the brand of art that is just this uh, financial instrument and like uh, just exists to serve the ruling class and and stuff for speculative investment or like and that's why art like people just have a bad opinion of art because it isn't for them it's just for rich people (laughs) and and that's the and that's like the real art that survives through all of this um and you know everybody's talking so much about the role of like arts and culture right now in terms of bringing us together and making us happy every day and making us be able to survive whatever and you know content voids that are coming or like content you know like people just consuming content 24 7 is our stock going up? Is the stock of arts and culture going up in, in all of this? Or Well, I, I, th- I feel like if you slash the funding because of austerity measures, art will suffer. And we're seeing that like with the art world jobs that are supported by like our fairly lucky in the world, like public public art funding that we have in Canada that's continuously still could always be better and is continuously slashed or eroded. We're, we are seeing like repercussions uh, at the institution there, like John and I work where, you know, people have to be suddenly making content for online platforms in position for when they were in positions that never, ever prepared them for this role or had no other. Uh, they have no experience that would lead them to this. Or there's like one random uh, millennial employee who's chosen who works at this gallery to produce all of the online content just because they happen to be the one who knows how to post on Instagram. And that doesn't really feel like the value of arts and culture in quarantine is is increasing, but it's just the austerity measures is instead like trying to paste over a happy face of the actual like job losses to artists. <laughs> Related to our artist, our 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 art project, uh, intern purgatory. We there, there we had uh, the intern purgatory. It introduces you to your new live work cubicle. It was a joke that we came up with for a gallery installation, and then eventually became like our own living situations as artists. And now it's kind of like this thing that everybody is experiencing, like this trying this division of of like household labor and 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 
workplace labor and and having to like do it all in the same space. Yeah, the only thing we were missing from the from you know from that metaphor being functional to real life was the actual purgatory, the endless you know white space of nothingness that we each floated through as individuals. But now quarantine came and did it for us, so now we have that, and we actually just like our art ended up just being a, a extremely boring mirror or or like direct allegory to to real life. But we had no way of predicting that. Nostradamus, you guys yeah. have this plandemic, plandemic. You guys are Bill Gates. I mean, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> you can like, sell your app, your free I app. I didn't call us Nostradamus, but you know, <laughs> not my words. <laughs> it's a dangerous time to be yeah. Nostradamus. First, first, first as farce, then as tragedy. <laughs> I do hope, like, uh, with some of the work that we've been doing uh, for our workplace, we've been really encouraging, like, the adoption of, like, actually showing work intent that's produced and intended for, like, the screen. Not just, like, video work that can be shown on a screen, but actually, like, internet art, GIF exhibitions, or interactive apps that are built for experiences that don't really work that well in the gallery, just because of the, like, oh, I walk around and I look at the walls and then I go back home, uh, that it demands a sort of different... Uh, engagement and may- maybe if like not all if, like arts funding is slashed or like we go into like hyper austerity after this maybe there will be like more opportunities for arts institutions to engage with this kind of work or at least like have some of the kind of temporary measures that we see like digital exhibitions or like online programming that's happening maybe that it'll be an opportunity to continue that post COVID but yeah and, like, like if there's not the even outlined fees and stuff in the in that area like. Yeah, 30, and it's really exciting because those are conversations that people didn't have any reference for. And like, like if somebody wants to show your work on a screen, some or like on a on a website somewhere, that it's really easy to like, you know, not get any money for that just because it's like, oh well, don't you post things to Instagram all the time and not get any money for that? Like, <laughs> uh, there's a there's not a conversation around like paying for art or digital art. But yeah, it all dependent dependent on the policies that, of course, come out of this. So uh, even with like the best intentions, things still have to get paid for. And yeah, we'll see. Are there any new <laughs> tools or emerging technologies that are changing the way that you do you do your work or inspiring future projects? Or? I really like shopping on the Unity Asset Store for different game templates. They're called uh, like there's this um, term called shovelware, and it means like an app that you just made off of a template, switched around some assets on it, and then like published it to the App Store with some in-app purchases, which also come from a template, or some uh, some advertising, which you can also sort of automatically insert inside your app. This is like or- the dog-themed Candy mm. Crush idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if you want, if you want to like cheaply make an app, puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't crush them. <laughs> if you wanted to Candy what? puppy. Uh, if you want a quick turnaround uh, on something you can make money on. Uh, so you can shop on the Unity Asset Store for different uh, templates for all kinds of different games. Like they have ones, like the sort of thing we're talking about would be like a match three uh, game template. And there's a lot of things for that that automatically integrate things like in-app purchasing, advertising, uh, whatever, all those other ways that people make money. Uh, you can also get all these other templates. So we 
recently bought an MMORPG, which is like a massively multiplayer online game template to build one of those. So working more with game templates is something that I am sort of excited about because it's an interesting constraint in one way where you have to like work within this like tool set that someone made to design a game that is going to be inspired by these like genre tropes basically you know it's like the code they're basically it's sort of like if Quentin Tarantino used templates to make his like genre film or, or something where it's like the the genre of the western being inscribed in the code itself the way these games will be is in in the code so I like shopping on this on the UDS it's sort of I waste a lot of time browsing it's <laughs> <laughs> interesting from a collage and from a literacy perspective too because I'm sure when you're playing with them you learn certain things about through the yeah. restrictions and then you can kind of remix them or, or or mess with them tweak them a bit yeah, yeah. Unity, Unity has a, a bunch of tutorial uh, files that are just this exactly like I think their basic one is you build like a Mario Kart like game or it's a temp template where it has one of those and the best way to learn is just by messing around and see what happens when you like change different values or add more objects into the scene so yeah it is a cool literacy tool for sure mm -hmm. it's like playing like so cert certain like the formal qualities of like the racing game and then it allowing you to like explore that system and how that system really like tells you the minds of the game creators <laughs> as well mm -hmm. ian what technology are you excited about <laughs> <laughs> Pen and paper role-playing games? <laughs> Is that your jam? That's my jam, yeah. Actually, I... I I skip I skip skip D and D tonight for this. Jeez, <laughs> did you for real? I did. Yeah, I just got a, I just got a message that someone punched a hobbit in the face. That's <laughs> <laughs> a that's a fun technology. And also, the origin of Tough Guy Mountain was a Dungeons and Dragons game. Yeah, that's true. Dun <laughs> yeah, Tough Guy Mountain was originally just a location in the, in the Dungeons and Dragons world we played in. Oh, really? And did I you? think yeah. <laughs> I think like and That's the whole like collective art model or like art yeah collective art building model world building model like is so it's just like entirely informed by this this kind of interaction. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you're game lovers too. Like it start started from that from that place as well. Put all our energy into making a board game for a long time. You know, a board game has to work so well for it to be anything like you, you you make software that doesn't work from an art perspective or a game perspective like you know maybe the whole the, the whole thing is undamaged kind of thing like a board game that has a broken piece in its system is just like a total waste of anyone's time who touched it so yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If like I, I complain about, you know, the design limitations or the expectations the audience comes to when they look at an app. And if it's like if it doesn't work, they turn it off. Oh, I always feel sorry for like the people at game jams who come up to me and are like, do you want to play my card game? And and then I'm just like, oh, I have no, like I have no patience for this very like lengthy in rule book that you're like presenting me. <laughs> oh, have you ever worked with? Have you guys ever played with? developing for a headset like for an ar headset and which one not ar no not, not ar not headsets. ar yet 
but VR, VR headsets we've right. developed for. And what, but what were the, were like Oculus or what, what, what were the headsets? Yeah, Oculus Rift and Quest. So there's like a version of Intern Purgatory. Like you can see it in the Quest or Rift if we build a version for it. Because it's just like John was saying earlier about the attraction of Unity being able to like build to different uh, devices is we can build it for the Quest. But yeah, we have some AR work projects coming up in the next year that might be involving a headset so and we we get a canada council grant to work on a vr documentary called resourced that's uh, sort of a project that ben started who's the other spec work guy who's not here so that's an that's a something we've been working on for a number of years now and shown a couple different prototypes of it on vr headsets in galleries so mm-hmm. um that's a project that has had us really thinking a lot about interaction in vr and it's so it takes it's a lot of work so, <laughs> it takes a, a long time to develop <laughs> just to make even yeah just to make people not puke while looking at your art mm-hmm. it's like so many more steps than I thought I needed. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the, and the fact that like yeah, women and children, it doesn't seem to work so good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. It's literally designed for the like nerdy white guys yeah. in Silicon Valley who built it. Like literally, like their specific like hairstyles and and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, 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 and body, like, types. body types is like the only bodies it works really well for. So for me, it's perfecto. Yeah. <laughs> anything anything I build, gotta run it past Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How's it, how's it looking? How's it looking over yeah, there? I'm the only audience it works for. Yeah. We're at events, so VRTO is coming up later this uh, in June or happening in June and so we want to start workshopping a performance to go along with the app and then uh, we want to present that performance at Vectorfest in July so it's going to be a performance in VR using either VR chat or Mozilla hubs, which are sort of like social VR spaces where you're, you all have avatars and you can see each other moving around and talking and stuff. Yeah. But don't think about those apps. Think about our app. (laughs) So we'll be in that app and like use our other app. Here's another app you can download that isn't this app. Since you're clearly somebody using apps. Um, so just at the end of each uh, conversation I've been having, I've been asking people about how they use like communication technologies and platforms like preferences and stuff like that. Jed's just Instagram or Twitter? Uh, Instagram. Like, like, uh, just like a, a lightning round. Lightning round. <laughs> like, you're not allowed to think. It's like a Rorschach yeah. plot. It's just when I say Instagram or Twitter, which one makes you scream? No. <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> I'm an I'm a visual person. <laughs> Uh, I've been using an app called Marco Polo to talk to like four of my friends. It's like a really dumb video messaging app where you just send a video of yourself talking and it makes a little cue at the bottom. So that's the only way I've been talking to people lately. For real? Yeah. Oh my god. Well, I mean, like, I just talked to like, my, you know, like, f- you know, four of my closest friends, and but it's maybe very comfortable talking in front of the camera. I used to not understand how people on like Instagram could like vlog and stuff like that. You know, just casually on the fly, they're like talking with their camera. I'm like, whoa, how do you like work up the nerves to do that? But now I can do it all the time thanks to Marco Polo, some random dumb app that one of my friends found. Um, <laughs> emoji or give. Uh, I like a GIF in the chat. I was just looking for all the Lord of the Rings GIFs that exist in the Facebook tenor GIF thing. Uh, so I like, yeah, I like finding the different GIFs that are in the GIF list. I like emoji. 
I'm more emoji. I'm gonna I'm gonna go GIF as well. You know, fi- finding an appropriate GIF at the appropriate moment is the only real art. <laughs> it's true. I, I find emojis I feel, so limiting. Yeah, and so literal. I find them tough to. I still like to type them out though, just like the colon, like dash, uh, oh, like like bracket, parentheses. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And then it automatically, of course, turns it into a proper emoji, right? Depending on what you're yeah. doing. <laughs> so for a long time, I insisted on like only, I don't know why it must, it was like a holdover from my forum days. Um, but like, I was like it, it, do, uh, writing all my emojis backwards so that they would remain in text instead of, uh, <laughs> instead of being auto-corrected to the visual. But commitment to a bit there, like what? It was, I've let that, I, I, I've learned to adapt in this new society of ours. I just, That's I just so use the keyboard too, because a lot of people wouldn't understand it just in the text. Well, form. a lot of people <laughs> thought I was doing sad faces, and when I did a backwards like smiley face, but mm. so you did the mouth on top of the eyes, or it was just the other, it was just the other bracket, and then the colon, and then the, and then the eyes, just facing the other way. Wow, turn that frown upside down. <laughs> That is commitment. Wow. Okay, text or phone call? Uh, text. Text. Yeah, t- yeah, text. Though I'm like more open to phone calls than I ever have been. In in this in this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm starved for any kind of socialization. I'd love to have it. If someone randomly <laughs> called me, I'd be like, heck yeah, let's do this. Where normally I'm like, I'm so. I'm so terrified by people that call me that I like, I, yeah, I feel like they're doing me some injury if they call me. <laughs> or without the like pre-consent text. Yeah. Of, like, can I call you? Are you available? Yeah. If like Belle wants to call me and offer me some like, you know, cell phone package, like I will milk that for like a 20 minute conversation <laughs> of real human connection. Oh, unfortunately they won't right now. Cause yeah, yeah. long wait list. <laughs> um, Please, Bell, call me if you're listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fun services. We can chat for a little bit. <laughs> you said let's talk. I want to talk. Maybe I'll think about that satellite. <laughs> you said let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they should be individually helping people with mental health issues. Right? Like, hey, how's it going? Just checking in. <laughs> to help you practice self-care. Yeah. I, I just work for Bell. I'm not a registered psychotherapist, but, you know, just checking in. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get back to my phone tree now. <laughs> like, who's next? <laughs> I'm gonna cheer up. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. Email or DMs? DMs, 100%. DMs. People like, my email's all spam. Really? Like, yeah, just, some, someone asked me, uh, I just answered an email today about someone who watched the first episode of The Last Dance when it first came out. So that's like a, that's like a month ago now. And I'm just like, oh, yeah. yeah. I've now watched that whole show and we'll talk to you about your opinion on the first episode from, from a month ago. So, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, DMs for sure. Slide on in. <laughs> um, until until I can like organize and like leave a mark unread my DMs, I'm still gonna go with email because I need to be able to I need to be able to have that unread email that I've read several times but I've yet to like formulate a correct response to sit for several weeks in my inbox. Several weeks? <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm being transparent here. Yes. No, I mean, you have emails that are like from like years ago. Okay. Yes. I'm. <laughs> and she'll respond one day. But 
ever since they made it possible on any app to like you know turn off the red receipts it's just like everyone treats you as though you've read it immediately even mm-hmm. if you haven't so like mm-hmm. just no if not then it's followed 45 minutes later by like are you okay did you see, did you see my text yeah. or did you you know what i mean like why are you texting me to say if i saw your text like since having a kid, I let my joke has like left you on right because I'm like never get to finish a text. <laughs> Sometimes friends will be like looking at those three dots so long. I have a friend; she'll always write like, "Oh, I can't wait to hear what you're gonna say. <laughs> like, this is gonna be epic." <laughs> it's like a half finished sentence that I've been trying to write for three days. <laughs> Your friends left you on red, but I'm gonna leave you at soccer practice. <laughs> What about you, Jonathan? Uh, I'm going to say email, too. Yeah. You can be slower. It's just like being slower with email. I like that. Or, like, uh, I was listening to, like, a stupid, like, business guy. I think it's the 4-Hour Workweek guy. His podcast once. Or maybe I read the 4-Hour Workweek book, so maybe it's from that. And he only answers emails once per week. And that's sort of like a, a thing, an idea that I like a lot, even though it's also sort of psychopathic. <laughs> uh, uh, but I don't like having to reply to things so fast. I don't, I don't think very fast with uh, <laughs> uh, fast enough to be able to keep up with having conversations all the time. So emails more my speed. Uh, what about voice note, voice note, or video chat? Oh, those are horrible options. Oh yeah, you hate the I most? like a voice. I like a voice note. <laughs> I'm into voice note. Voice note or video chat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're not uh, really quite the same. Yeah, I mean, I like, a, I like a voice note, but I'm probably more likely to do a video chat just because, yeah, as soon as I record my own voice, I begin to doubt myself. No. <laughs> you're, you're literally on a podcast right now, Kat. I'd probably go. Voice chats always seem so dorky. I'm always like, whenever I get one, I was like, what are you, what are you doing? What do you mean you're just like leaving this like voice memo here? <laughs> uh, but I think because of that, they're charming, and someone video chatting you out of nowhere is kind of scary. So I'll go, I'll go, vi- vo- whatever we call voice, whatever we just called it, the voice one. Yeah, I picked that. The voice note. I picked that. Voice note. Just, only because there's a gun to your head and you, and you don't want a video chat. You don't want someone to call you while you're on the toilet expecting to see you immediately. Yeah. And as and as app developers, the a smartphone or tablet. Uh, uh, I I use my s- smartphone. I'll... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree with yeah, you. But... Smartphone. I really like my tablet. <laughs> I use my tablet in a more healthy relationship than I, or like my tab, my relationship to my tablet is much more wholesome than my, uh, uh, my dependency on my smartphone. So I'll go with tablet, but. I, I use, I have an iPad for drawing on, so all of the, like, I do a lot of the storyboarding that we, aforementioned storyboarding there, and, and uh, I read, I like reading books with lots of, like, big pictures that I could zoom in on the tablet, so. Okay, I think I've got, like, three iPads in, like, a drawer somewhere <laughs> that I have not touched in, like, two years. Right. They're specifically as relics of Tough Guy Mountain performances. <laughs> Twice in a gallery setting or in a, in a setting where you're doing like a demo or showing them, would you want people to interact with them on the phone or on the or on the tablet? Oh. Or on tablet. A, on a tablet for sure. Tablet yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. We always we always went with tablets for like any sort of performance just because it was bigger font. <laughs> yeah. And if I if I had an iPad Pro, I'd probably use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those tablets that we have are all that the Tough Guy Mountain ones were all like repurposed old 
like much older yeah. generations. From wherever we could get them. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> thank well, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. It's such a lovely conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Thanks for giving us yours. And thanks for your time, listeners out there. Come back for the last episode in this series when I speak with famous new media artist Jeremy Bailey about how artists built the internet. Until then, stay creative and do be artists.